Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Babylon 5 versus uh, Deep Space 9, the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher. Take a screenshot and email the screenshot and your question to us at b5bsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question live on the show. We plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, please hit us up again at email at b5bsds9 at gmail.com. Welcome back to the Babylon 5 versus Deep Space 9 podcast. This is uh, Bob from Cascadia. I got Matt from the Southland on the line. How you doing tonight, Matt? I'm doing all right. Uh watched some three whole episodes of DS9 in a row, and I'm kind of, uh, call it DS9 fatigue, I guess, or something. You, you having any bodily symptoms? Uh, shakes? Chills? I'm good right this second. I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'll make it. I'll survive. Keep to your healthy steroid regimen, and I'm sure everything will be fine. So for today, we're covering uh, the Babylon 5 Season 1, Episode 9, Deathwalker, which aired on the 20th of April, 1994. And then we are also talking about the three-part Season 2 premiere of uh, DS9, which is The Homecoming, The Circle, and The Siege, which appeared on the 26th of September, 1993, followed by the 3rd of October and the 10th of October. So uh, quite a full load. So let's just go ahead and get to it. Uh, Matt, do you want to lead us off by talking about the A-plot of Deathwalker? Sure. Uh, the Deathwalker shows up on Babylon 5, and she's the last survivor of the Dilgar species. She was a butcher during that point. Like I mean, not, not a butcher like she cut meat, like a butcher like she killed and murdered people during the invasion of the non-aligned worlds. She shows up on B5 uh, looking probably young for her age. She doesn't look the age she's supposed to and uh she sparks this huge diplomatic crisis between all five major powers on the station as well as the league of non-allied worlds who want her to stand trial for her war crimes pretty much find out later on you know she has some kind of serum that can uh provide uh eternal youth but there's there's a crux to that there's a problem with it so yeah, yeah. And then in the B-plot, we've got uh, Ambassador Kosh of the Vorlons contracting uh, Babylon 5 telepath Talia Winters to sit in on these seemingly nonsensical negotiations he's holding with Abut, who we find out at the very end of the episode is a vicar or a, re a recording cyborg is what vicar is slang for. 
Um, so just to start there on Kosh Watch, since uh, Kosh Watch has been a regular feature of the podcast so far, Matt, what do you think of Ambassador Kosh this episode? Uh, you learn a lot more about Kosh here. I mean, he's still, there's not much, but you do realize he does not like telepaths. And I felt bad for Talia just having to sit there and like listen to them go back and forth with their, their nonsense. I think this is the first episode we've actually seen him not either in his little quarters or just kind of showing up at a at one of the votes. He was actually in the uh, like their ten forward or their cantina or something. The Zucalo, I think the it's Zu- called. The, the Zucalo, yeah, he was in the Zucalo. That that was interesting to see him kind of out of his regular setting. Yeah, when you put it like that, it makes it almost seem like. Uh, the nearest uh, equivalent to Ambassador Kosh on uh, Deep Space Nine is Morn, the uh, barfly in Quark's bar who's modeled on Norm from Cheers. And it's kind of interesting. You, know, you can just kind of imagine all sorts of amusing situations where you're just out uh, out in Babylon 5 doing various things. And then you see Ambassador Kosh in the background, uh, you know, being mysterious, doing unaccountable things. It just seems like a, a position ripe for comedy. Yeah, he he was not he was definitely out of his element at this point. It seemed like it didn't fit in with everyone else. But, uh, um, yeah, so you you took it as he doesn't like telepaths and he was purposefully tormenting Winters. That's that's sort of how you read those negotiation scenes. He made her sit in on with uh, Aboot. to some degree. Yeah, but then also I feel like he was like at the end of the episode when Sinclair mentions that he's probably or Garibaldi mentions that there's probably collecting information to blackmail her at some point or to hold something over her head. Uh, there's probably more to it there. But yeah, I think he was just trying to make sure that he knew that uh, he could keep his mind clear around her. Mm-hmm. Interesting, she, interesting. She, she could, this vicar the, the, uh, was just a really random character. It was so strange. He was straight out of the early 90s with his outfit and everything and just... We might, we might as well transition to another watch segment, which is Nostalgia Watch. And uh, yeah, we could talk a little bit about Aboot, who's just entirely wild, right? Like everything about him from like his exposed brain kind of cyberpunk technology to his fashion sense to like the smarmy way he tries to pick up Winters. It, uh, it, it all seems like very, very early or mid-90s. Yeah, his hat with the feather in it just... He, yeah, but I believe just, I believe the technical term for that is a pimp hat. Huh? Yeah, his his whole look was just yeah, it was awful. <laughs> oh, I I thought it was a uh, I thought it was kind of charming in its way. Um, <laughs> that that said, uh, have no fear, a boot never returns. Um, so you're 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 free of his uh, loud fashion sense if uh, that's not your thing. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. <laughs> All right. So we also find out that uh, the Death Walker has created this immortality serum. And so, you know, the central sort of moral dilemma of the episode, right, is that the Earth, the Centauri, and the Narn all really want this invention and, you know, presumably want to be in charge of developing and distributing it to the galaxy. And that's contrasted with the League of Non Alliance Worlds' um, insistence that the Death Walker stand trial for her war crimes during the Dilgar invasion. Now, granted, the League doesn't know what um, the Death Walker has invented yet, so that once they learn that, they kind of changes their tune. But the basic moral dilemma of the episode stages is one of like 
immor uh, immortality and like this sort of huge social benefit on the one hand versus, you know, justice, accountability, reckoning with the horrors of the past on the other. Did you have any thoughts about how the episode balanced those two competing drives? I felt like she was able to hold the, the immortality sort of kind of over her head and be like, okay, ha, huh, you can't try me for my crimes now because I have this and there's no way around it. You had the Minbari and the Norn and the uh, Centauri all trying to get the, they wanted the formula more than anything. They, they really didn't care anything about putting her up for trial. But then you had the other side, the, the League of Non-Aligned uh, Nations. Is that correct? Yeah. League of Non-Aligned non -aligned Worlds. worlds. Non-Aligned yeah. Worlds that wanted to uh, put her up for trial almost you know, immediately. They wanted her head. In, I, I don't know. In contrast, I think they could have just gone with, uh, they could have had their cake and eaten it too and just gone with both sides. I mean, get, get the formula, get, get the trial up, let's go. To kind of to kind of build out from that, so did you feel like the backstory and the machinations between the five great powers, the Dilgar, and the League of Non-Aligned Worlds, did that make sense to you? Because it's, I mean, one of the things this episode has is an impressive amount of players, right? Like you need to more or less understand who all the main five powers are, and you need to know the Dilgar, and then you need to know the League of Non-Aligned Worlds, both as like a single entity, and then it's not as important, but we also see multiple species from within the League of Non-Aligned Worlds kind of showing up to you. So you have a really kind of broad and potentially bewildering cast of uh, powers at play here. Yeah, you got a lot of different people involved. And with the Dilgar War, it was one of the, like, the first conflicts that the uh, Earth Alliance got into, correct? Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think that the way they were able to handle the Dilgar invasion pretty easily kind of filled them with um, some overconfidence that was then their downfall when they too quickly, too readily got into the Earth-Minbari War. Um, I guess I guess that would have been about 20 years after the Dilgar invasion, and they just get waxed in the Earth-Minbari War. So really, since, uh, since the creation of the Earth Alliance, really they've only had two uh, confrontations, correct? Uh, I think wars. there's a third. I think there's a third war, but I can't remember what it was. I don't think it was like a huge thing, but maybe I'm. I, I I should look that up and put it in the show notes to be to be clear for the listeners. But I think there was another conflict. Maybe the Dilgar invasion was the first thing Earth got involved in, and there was something else in between it and uh, the Earthman Bari War. Yeah, the Dilgar War I think was definitely the first. What I'm understanding because that that's how they got their rep at that point. They were like, okay, Earth's not something to be to be messed with. Of course, then they get their their butts handed to them in the Bari War. Yeah, and then there is the there is a misunderstanding when they have um, their first contact with the Centauri, which is about a hundred years before the setting of Babylon Five. Uh, they being the Earth Alliance, but I don't think that ever escalates in, in, into any violence. I think it's just a sort of weird misunderstanding that maybe kind of sets the tone for Earth's uh, paranoia and defensiveness when out in the galaxy. From my understanding, too, like, the Dilgar uh, war, during, at the time of the Dilgar war, like, humanity was, like, real fresh on, like, interstellar, on the interstellar political scene, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. uh, they've mm -hmm. having been, having they discovered, like, the jump gate hyperspace by the Centauri, that was kind of where they were at. And then the non-alon worlds at that time seemed to be like low tech and that they were being kind of overrun by the Dilgar at that point. 
Yeah, I, I have to confess, I don't really understand very much about the League of Non-Aligned Worlds myself. Like, I don't, I you know, the difference seems to be that they're like just, you know, they're just individual worlds who don't have much power on the galactic scene. That I mean, that's the impression that this and other episodes give. But I, I don't, I in what I've seen of the show, which so far I've seen the first three seasons, I don't think there's ever a lot of like, clarity about the backstory about like how the league of non-aligned worlds came about seems like they're definitely uh much lower in power than any of the five major powers and it seems like they especially have to appeal very often to the earth alliance or to the naran regime for assistance whereas it seems like they have a historically they have a pretty fraught relationship with the centauri we sort of see that with the accusation in the council chamber that the dilgar were just acting as proxies or mercenaries for the Centauri. But so I, I understand that, but I, I don't quite understand like the history of the League of Non-Aligned Worlds itself, if that makes sense. I think the, the League of Non-Aligned Worlds is primarily just your background aliens, the ones that don't really have much of a part in the show, <laughs> but they want to make sure yeah. they're represented somehow. So Yeah, <laughs> although some of them will get more development. Like we, we've seen a fair amount of the Drazi already, yes. and we'll see, we'll see more of the Drazi. And then... I'll just say that the the league has a has a plot role to play as as the series advances. That that's all I'll say about that. Um, I one other last point to make on this. I just wanted to say I did sort of appreciate like the layers of the different powers, right? Where it's like the League of Non-Aligned Worlds really does have to subordinate its desires and its interests totally to Earth, right? So when Earth, even though Earth is sort of taking this more protective attitude towards the league it's still like okay earth wants the death walker for this immortality serum uh Im immortality serum and the league almost immediately assents to that you know it's like okay earth offers this a good compromise but the league almost immediately has to you know sort of put their interests behind the interest of earth but then we see that you know we see that get trumped again where we see uh, the Vorlon just deciding that nobody gets the immortality serum and blowing up the transport with the Death Walker and the serum on it. Even though you have this relationship of subordination of the League being forced to follow along with the whims of the Minbari or the Narn or the humans, it's humorous that, you know, then at another level on top of that major power structure is just the Vorlons who, you know, it just seems like no one at all could mess with if, you know, the, the Vorlons are going to do what they want to do. And that's pretty much it. All right. You ready to transition over to the three-parter for DS9 now? Yeah, let's get with the DS9 for oh, DS9. <laughs> uh, walk us through the uh, A-plot of uh, Homecoming, Circle, and Siege. Yeah, in the A-plot, street violence grows on Bajor as the uh, secretive terrorist group, the Circle, with some government military support, seeks to overthrow Bajor's provisional government and expel all aliens from the Bajor system. Yeah, and then in the B-plot, we've got uh, Cisco in an attempt to stabilize popular support with the Bajoran provisional government, um, reluctantly authorizing Kira and O'Brien to undertake a rescue mission for the greatest hero of the Bajoran resistance, Lee Nollis, who uh, Kira just recently learned survived the occupation and is in a Cardassia floor labor camp. So, yeah, I mean, this is a pretty, pretty long episode. It's sort of a landmark for Star Trek, just in the sense that it's the first three-parter that 
is ever trip forward. I mean, you'd had two parters before, like best of both worlds and redemption in next generation, but never a three parter. So this is the first three parter. And in some sense, it, uh, it pioneers uh, the longer form storytelling that DS9 later would do, especially during the Dominion War story. But uh, that, that said, it's, it's not a really great uh, set of episodes by any means. But uh, a few things to flag. One thing is at the very early outset of the second episode, The Circle, we have a scene in Kira's quarters. And after the rescue of Lee Nollis, the Bajoran provisional government replaces her with Lee Nollis as the executive officer of DS9. The scene in Kira's quarters is sort of an interesting homage to the chaotic and theatrical qualities of the 1930s and 40s screwball comedies. You've got Kira, Odo, Dax, Bashir, O'Brien, and Quark, as well as Vedic Burial, all showing up in Kira's quarters to send her off. And there's a lot of overlapping dialogue. There's a lot of comedic misunderstandings of different people's intentions. And it's an interesting scene for a couple reasons. It does seem to be the writers trying to give a collective sense of the DS9 cast as a whole, as a unit. We have almost everybody in the main cast here, except for uh, Cisco and his son, Jake. It's also, uh, technically, it's kind of interesting. Apparently, they captured the main sequence of the scene in one take. It also seems to maybe be an attempt to do a little reparative work after season one, where you know, most of season one, Kira just operates as a normal cast member, but there are episodes like Emissary, Past Prologue, uh, Duet, and Hands of the Prophets, where they really do stage Kira's interest and Bajor's interest as against uh, Starfleet's interest and Cisco's interest. And so it seems like with this sort of comedic send-off of Kira, they're really trying to establish that, okay, Kira is a member of the cast. She is sort of in a unified sort of you know, fellow feeling with the cast. I don't know. I just, I thought it was an interesting scene for those reasons. what do you think of it, Matt? I thought it was hilarious. Honestly, I thought it was funny. It was a good setup with like a Marx Brothers kind of comedy type thing. I, I was glad they, they, like you said, they went back with Kira and kind of made sure everyone understood that she was part of their, of their group on DS9 mm-hmm. and that they didn't want her to leave. And, you know, she, she was definitely a part of the station itself. Mm-hmm. In the earlier in the episodes of season one, you know, like I, I tell you, I can't stand Kira honestly at the, in the first season. Uh, so I was kind of excited that she may be going, but nope, she, she sticks around. Just, <laughs> of course. Well, and this this episode does feel like an attempt to pivot the tone a little more. I I, I want to see if you agree with me, but I don't remember season one being all that funny, except for the quark scenes potentially. Whereas here, like, there seems to be a real attempt to get a kind of feeling of camaraderie and a feeling of comedy going, especially around Kira. So, you know, we sort of have the misadventures of Kira and O'Brien when they're trying to free the Bajoran prisoners from the labor camp on Cardassia 4. We have the comedy of the scene in Kira's quarters. Later, we'll have the sort of buddy comedy of Kira and Dax going to a, I think it's a moon, to get an old Bajoran resistance fighter to get Kira to the surface of Bajor. So you got a lot of kind of like comedic setups, especially with Kira, this uh, three episodes, and it does feel like it a kind of an attempt to reset the clock a little on her character. Yeah, it's it's definitely, there, there's, there's a slight shift in tone. It's not a crazy shift, but it's enough to where you see there is some more humor involved within, within the episode and the characters are trying to play off each other and get more comfortable with one another. 
Mm-hmm. Which I mean make makes sense though, since they've technically been on the station for a year, so they've known each other for a while now at this point. They're Yeah, yeah. So I did want to ask, um, are you familiar with uh, Frank Langella as an actor and uh, what did you think of him in this episode since he or these three episodes since he plays a pretty uh main role as the antagonist, Minister Jaro? He's one of those actors that I've seen before in other things, but I didn't know that was him. You know what I mean? I didn't know it was him. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I've seen him in a lot of different things, but I can't specifically tell you. He kind of play to me, he plays, like, the same character in everything. Slightly, like, there, you feel like there's something kind of evil behind his eyes just a little bit, maybe. Just, <laughs> you don't know. That, that, that seems to be the character he's good at. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know much about the actor himself. I probably need to internet movie database him, but... Uh, was I right to guess that you uh, you knew him as Skeletor in the 1987's film Masters of the Universe? No, I did not know that. <laughs> wow, okay. That's new to me. I'm glad yeah. I didn't look that up then. That's crazy. But he's been in other um, he's been in other stuff though, right? Like Yeah, he's been in a lot of other stuff. Yeah, um, and he, he always seems to play the villain, I believe. He's one of those guys. Not not always, but often. He plays the evil client in the Johnny Depp, Roman Polanski movie, The Ninth Gate, that I'm really fond of. He plays Nixon in uh, Ron Howard's Frost Nixon, which is a really good performance as Nixon, but a really awful movie. And then the thing I love him the best for was he had a long supporting role on the spy show, The Americans, where he plays a Soviet spy master who sort of, he doesn't do this for the whole show, but for part of the show, he... He's the he's the sort of uh, spy master for the two main characters of the Americans, and that's that's actually the thing I I might like him the most for. He's he's very, very sympathetic but very cold blooded. So, what did you think about the? Uh, we mentioned tonal shifts earlier. Uh, they've kind of changed the way they're doing things now, and they're focusing in this three quarter specifically on DS Nine and a plot that really can only take place on DS Nine. We're moving away from Next Generation. You're not seeing that as much. Did you did you notice that at all with this three parter? Uh, yeah, I, I think I did. I mean, it is very much like they're building off the mythology they set down in the first season, and this is an episode or a three episodes that's almost entirely devoted to like Bajoran politics and complications from Bajor. It's you know not a random probe coming in from the gamma quadrant as happened several times in season 1 and i think will happen several times in season 2 but you know it's not the sort of episode that could have been easily done for next generation or voyager which if you were going to make a complaint about a lot of the episodes in seasons 1 and 2 of ds9 you could say well they would function just as well as original series or voyager or enterprise episodes so if you were if you were going to make a complaint, it would be that complaint. But here you do get a kind of specificity of the world of Bajor and like the political stakes of it. And I guess I also did appreciate, even though I didn't think it was a very good rendition of these uh, themes and plots, I, I really did appreciate how it was sort of a dry run for the Dominion War. Um, you know, we get to see another power occupy DS9, which is something that we will see at the end of the show. Uh, we get in the implied romance we see between Frank Langella as Minister Jaro and uh, Louise Fletcher as Vedic Wynn. That sort of foreshadows a later romance we'll see with the Vedic involved. And I, I just say as a side note, too, I love Frank Langella and I love Louise Fletcher as uh, actors. And I was really disappointed. They had no chemistry in their scenes together. 
I, I think it was mostly just the writing didn't give them that much to do, but there was just no chemistry in those scenes at all, which was really disappointing. Moving away from chemistry, I guess, talking about uh, Cisco and Jake, uh, I guess chemistry between father and son. That sounds kind of weird to say, but I, you know what I mean. Yeah, way to make that transition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. Not 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 like not romantic chemistry, but you know that, that, that father and yeah, son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Cisco comforting Jake after his uh his, his first date's canceled because fathers following the circle, the xenophobia going on there, and also Jake and Nog's that farewell during the evacuation. They they weren't enough to make you want to shed a tear, but it was just enough to be like, man. Let's look at some serious things going on here in uh, DS9. Some serious uh, uh, emotional type things going on. Yeah, I, th- I thought they were surprisingly good. Like I don't, I did, I don't remember the Jake and Doc stuff fondly, um, but I, I have to say in this episode, like I, I really did like uh, uh, Jake and Nog's uh, farewell to each other. And it was it was also sort of interesting the way that uh, they had Jake sort of be the face of the human the human face experiencing discrimination from the Bajorans, right? And so that was just a sort of like interesting scenario, right? Because, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, it's not now, but for a long part of uh, a long part of American history, interracial dating, interracial relationships were taboo. And so that scene where, you know, Jake finds out that this Bajoran girl, he asked out his father has uh, shut that date down. You know, that kind of reflects that history of like the forbidding of interracial relationships, but it's kind of interesting that it's transposed into the science fiction context. And it's not because Jake is African-American, but it's because he's human and the the girl and her father Bajoran. And I guess to be fair, we don't, really know what skin color they have but it was just sort of interesting playing with that history what did you think about uh, why why is it that when i think of jake and nog in the first couple of seasons i think they were like always up to hijinks or something like doing something goofy on the station uh, you probably think that partly because they did do that in some episodes that we didn't see i think but i also think because that there were this series of kids books they, you know, you had the Starfleet Academy kids books that were like the adventures of like Worf and I think a couple of the other, maybe Data and maybe another Next Generation character at Starfleet Academy, not together. Like you had a few books that were about Worf, a few books that were about Data, et cetera. But then you also had a series of like young adult books or like books for kids. And I mean, like really like books for like third, fourth grade kids. Oh, this is what Jake and Nog get up to on the promenade sort of stuff maybe that's why I, I yeah i just for some reason i have memories of them like doing like goofy pranks and stuff all the time and not this serious uh mature acting <laughs> doesn't fit with my with my uh my memory yeah yeah because the oh, the other big jake and nod plot that we actually did cover for the podcast was the Jake teaching Nog how to read and like the whole debate about whether Rom is going to pull Nog out of Mrs. O'Brien's class. Right. So yeah, kind of, kind of serious stuff somewhat. All right. So let's go and move into comparisons. We're going to start with thirst watch. Uh, a lot of thirst going on these, these episodes, like way too much, uh, specifically in DS nine. Uh, that's just surprising. Cause usually it's Babylon five that has the, the thirst. Uh, yeah. Thirst watch. You've got Kieran O'Brien, posing as a, a sex worker and a pimp to sneak into Cardassia 4 uh, into the labor camp just was creepy and not what I expected out of Kira. <laughs> I was surprised. Like, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> and O'Brien, a flat out, like, he, he played the role of the pimp very well, like a little too well. Um, <laughs> I could probably watch a show of just O'Brien the pimp if they ever came up with that 
harmful and damaging stereotypes to the Irish man. Yes, yes, but it was it's good TV. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you've got uh, Kira and Barile who are very religiously thirsty for each other until they get blocked by uh, Vedic Wynn, which is a really funny scene. I, I enjoyed that scene. Yeah, the the scene with Kira and Burrell where they're like, I guess they're 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 topless. It, it looks that was like '90s sex right there. Was so <laughs> odd, like sex on TV. That was so. No, no, just all sex in the nineties. That's what it was like. Yeah, it, it was just odd. It's like a soap. <laughs> it's like a soap opera level. It was bad. It was bad. Yeah, and then you've got uh, the implicit thirst that we talked about between Vedic Wynn and Minister Jaro or Louise Fletcher and Frank Langella, which just uh, was implied but was uh, not felt. I guess we we could say about that, and. Uh, was there any other thirst uh, in these three episodes of DS9 that I missed? No, I think we've pretty much covered it. There was a lot. We've of covered the thirst. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then uh, on Babylon 5, we've got both Aboot and Garibaldi thirsting after winners, which has just become standard uh, routine at this point for Garibaldi and winners. We've also got Ambassador Jakar's aide, Natath, who's righteously thirsty for vengeance against the Deathwalker, which is, you know, a nice... It's good to have different levels of thirst, different types of thirst. Garibaldi still being a creep all the time. Just... Always, always. Uh, did anything come up for you for Econ Watch? No, didn't really uh, see anything this time around. Didn't hear anything. Uh, been been kind of low on the Econ front the last couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. I guess one question I would ask that kind of came to mind for me, and this this will lead us into Deep State Watch. Did you get the impression that Minister Jaro knew the weapons he was getting for the Circle came from the Cardassians, or did you get the sense that that was actually a surprise to him? Uh, I think he knew. You think he knew? Just to kind of it better it better fit his kind of villainous profile in your mind. Yes, I think he knew. Yeah, yeah. So then we have we have Deep State Watch, and we've got uh, both the Minbari and the Bajoran Deep States uh, factor heavily into these episodes. Um, you know, the Bajoran Deep State's pretty obvious. We see the Circle has infiltrated both the Bajoran military and uh, the Bajoran government. You know, we have this kind of vast uh, reactionary conspiracy to drive uh, foreigners or drive uh, aliens off of Bajor and off of DS9. So that the Bajoran deep state's uh, pretty clear. And then we have the Minbari deep state on display as well. Did you have any thoughts on uh, how they portrayed the Minbari in this episode, Matt? Uh, the Minbari, uh, when they referred to the, like, the warrior uh, case, like the, the wind swords, they're the same people that attempted to assassinate Kosh in the uh, in the pilot. Well, not the pilot. In the uh, yeah, in the pilot, the Gathering. Yes. Yeah, the TV movie. Yeah, yeah. same 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 group of uh, the Mimbori. I was surprised they went back to that. Apparently, I don't think they're mentioned again. From my understanding, but we'll see. The Minbari warrior cast continue to be a big deal in the overall mythos of Babylon Five. But I don't know if they go back to the I don't know if they go back to the wind swords in particular. Um, one point I did want to ask. So did you I I just took it to be the guy who uh, assassinated or tried to assassinate Ambassador Kosh in the gathering was a member of the wind swords. But did you take it that he was doing so at the direction of the wind swords? 
Oh, my understanding was he's doing the direction of the wind swords, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah, my 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 understanding was more he was he was rogue, but that I, I could be wrong about that. Uh, that that's maybe something worth going back and checking on. So I, I could be rogue, or I could be wrong about that. And you know, we are we are continuing to see this rather dark side of the Minbari, right? In the prior episode, the sky full of stars. We see that, you know, they tortured uh, Sinclair while he was a POW at the end of the Earthman Bari War. In this episode, we find out that, you know, at least a segment of the Minbari warrior cast uh, hid the Death Walker, um, you know, and prevented her from being punished for her crimes against the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. And then this, uh, this warrior cast uh, had her develop biological and chemical weapons that they then took to the rest of the Minbari during the Earth Minbari War and tried to get them to use the WND against Earth. So even though the Minbari uh, Grey Council refused to use the WMD, um, the fact that they continued to harbor Deathwalker for 10 more years does kind of suggest a real kind of dark side to the Minbari character. Let's talk about next time. Uh, we're looking at Episode 10, Believers, which Bob says is the worst B5 Season 1 episode, and Episode 4, Invasive Procedures. And I want to go and apologize to our audience ahead of time that this was a very heavy DS9 episode that we've just covered. So <laughs> so you're, if you're listening for Babylon 5 info, we apologize. But uh, covering three episodes of DS9, there's a lot, there's a lot to cover. Yeah, we'll rebalance uh, for next episode. And in general, just because there's a lot more DS9 episodes than Babylon 5 episodes, I think there's like 30 or 40, 40 more uh, DS9 episodes. Maybe not that many, but there's more. And to compensate for that, whenever we get a multi-part DS9 story, we'll treat the multi-part DS9 story as a single episode in order to kind of try and create some parody in our episode coverage. So we're always... Babylon 5 versus Deep Space Nine and not just Deep Space Nine. All right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us for this uh, episode of Babylon 5 versus DS9. Uh, this has been Bob from Cascadia. I've had Matt from the Southland on the line, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can follow us on Twitter at B5VSDS9. Uh, for show notes, subscribe to our Substack, B5VSDS9.substack.com. We're available on all major and most minor podcatchers. Please like and subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you have a question about either show or anything else you'd like us to tackle, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or another podcatcher. Take a screenshot, email that screenshot to us with your question at b5vsds9 at gmail.com, and we will answer your question on the show. Uh, we plan to start a Patreon with bonus content in the near future, so if you have any ideas of stuff you'd like to see for bonus episodes, Email us at b5vsds9 at gmail.com.